uh, I asked Kent because I wanted to hear him. So with no further ado, I'm going to introduce Kent from, he said, Friday night in Venice, and I said, what? He said, Venice like Italy, I said, I'm going. <laughs> My grandmother always said, anything you do will go better if you pray first. Let's do that. <laughs> Heavenly Father, use me tonight as an instrument of thy will. Speak through me. So whatever result that you desire here tonight will be accomplished in all things. Thy will, not mine, be done. And God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Somewhere in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't know where it is. I don't memorize pages and paragraphs. I'm more interested in what I do with what's in that book than knowing where it is. You know, one of the things I was taught when I came to AA is the important thing is not what you do between the serenity prayer and the Lord's prayer, but what you do between the Lord's prayer and the serenity prayer. This is a living program. It's not a talking program. It's not a thinking program. It's not a memorizing program. It's a program of action. But somewhere in our book, it says that certain times the alcoholic has no effective mental defense against the first drink, and that except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human can provide such a defense. That defense must come from a higher power. It don't say it ought to come from a higher power. It don't say it might come from a higher power. It doesn't say it should come from a higher power. It says it must come from a higher power. The single most important fact in my life as I stand here tonight in Willoughby is that I got a power in my life that I choose to call God who does for me one day at a time what I cannot do for myself. I established and grow in that relationship one day at a time through practicing to the best of my ability, which is never perfect, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as outlined by the founders in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is the reason that I say a prayer before I introduce myself from behind the podium. I want to assure each and every person in this room tonight, left to my own devices, I surely would have destroyed myself years ago. The reason that I'm standing here tonight is the grace of God has made manifest in my life through the 12 steps and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why I pray before I introduce myself is to keep me reminded and grounded and centered in the truth. And the truth is simply this. The reason that I'm here tonight is to do God's will, not mine. And it also serves to remind me that he is in charge here tonight. And as always, thank God, I am not. Good evening. My name is Kent Coleman. I'm an alcoholic. Honor and a privilege to be here. I want to thank Beth and the primary purpose group of Alcoholics Anonymous for allowing me the honor and the privilege of speaking at your first anniversary. Noah, um, I, I'm blessed to be able to do a lot of this kind of thing, and, and I want to say that it has never been um, more thrill than it is tonight. It never gets old for me. I never stop being grateful for it. I love Alcoholics Anonymous so much that I cannot even put it into words. Alcoholics Anonymous bought me from a meaningless, loveless existence to a quality of life beyond which I never dreamed possible. Alcoholics Anonymous brought me back to life. And um, how can you possibly outgive AA? I do not say no to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't. Sometimes I have to tell you not now. Okay. But I never say no. And uh, I want to thank Beth and I want to thank this group for having me um, come and participate in this celebration of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I was talking to Craig before the meeting. You know, it's gratitude month. It's November. Okay? And um, there's something that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I want to share this real quick, is I don't do things in AA because I'm grateful. I ain't that healthy. You take a guy like me and you put me in a room for 15 minutes and let me start thinking about my life. I got the kind of mind, maybe you can relate to this, that loves to focus on what isn't as opposed to what is. All of a sudden, my house ain't big enough. My car ain't fancy enough. You know? 
My wife talks too much. Yeah. Them kids is too bad, you know. So what I've learned here is I don't do things because I'm grateful. I'm grateful because I do things. When I go to the penitentiary and speak to the guys on Monday nights down in Marion, I walk out of there, I'm grateful for my freedom. When I'm sponsoring a man who can't see his wife and family because he doesn't know where they are or there's a court order preventing it, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for that house when I'm sponsoring a man who's living in 2100 Lakeside and has no home. See, gratitude is a byproduct of action, just like everything else in Alcoholics Anonymous. The only things that have ever benefited me in Alcoholics Anonymous have come from action that I've taken, not things that I've known. If you're new here tonight, I want to share something with you that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is not about the acquisition of knowledge and intellect. It is about the application of principles in my life one day at a time to the best of my ability. So I am grateful tonight for Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I started this day. I'm going to drop this real quick because I wasn't going to do this. I started the day with my telephone ringing. My father's in the hospital. And I started the day talking to a doctor that told me they found a tumor on his kidney. That's how I started my day. My daddy's 80 years old. That's how my day started. And I hung the phone up and I sat down and I thought about this. And a lot of things started rushing through my mind. See, but I've been with you guys long enough to know what to do. First, I said a prayer. And I put my daddy in God's hands where he is anyway. Okay? Then I called my sponsor. I told him what was going on. Okay? Then I got up. I got in my car. And I drove to Cleveland to Stella Maris, where I am the director of programs and services, and I did two hours of big book with my guy. And I walked out of there smiling. See, you've given me the answer. See, trust God, clean house, and help others. And that's how I started my day, and it's a wonderful day. I talked to my father when I was driving out here from Stella Maris. My kids was tearing up his hospital room. I can hear uh, Nickelodeon on the TV in the background. <laughs> and I asked him how he's doing. He said, I'm fine. God is good. God is good and he's good all the time. I want to talk for a minute to those who are new. I came to AA. They told me I had to do some things, or they suggested it anyway. They said, these are the kind of suggestions that we make. If you jump out of an airplane and you got a parachute on your back, we suggest you pull the ripcord. <laughs> they are the kind of suggestions that they make in AA, you know. The first one, they said, to get a sponsor. And I didn't even know what a sponsor was. And I asked a guy, and he said, a sponsor is somebody who has working knowledge and experience with the 12 steps as outlined by the founders in the book, who is willing to take the time to sit down and share with you the program of recovery out of that book, and just as importantly, who can demonstrate in their life what your life can be like if you do what they do. See, they said working knowledge and experience, not book knowledge. I know how to read. Okay? I have sponsorship in Alcoholics Anonymous today. I'm sponsored by Bill Finley and Lorraine and Kenny Bombalicki and Parma. About 81 years of AA between them, least impressive thing I can tell you. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous, ladies and gentlemen, is not a program of seniority. It's a program of quality. Okay? From being with Bill and Kenny outside the rooms of AA, I've learned how to be a husband, a father, a son, a brother, an employer, an employee, and a decent citizen in the community that I live in. I came to you with none of those skills in my life. My sponsor, Kenny, told me something I found it to be true in my experience. He said, the only people in AA that ain't got sponsors are people that ain't planning on staying. See, I was talking to Craig about that before the meeting. You know why? Because I don't want nobody to know me. I don't want nobody getting close to me. Because I ain't staying. Okay? I do this sometimes. Would everybody in this room tonight who would be willing to sponsor a new person in AA, please raise your hand. Okay? Thank you very much. For all of you who are new and ain't got a sponsor, I just hooked you up. Okay? <laughs> so the beautiful thing about AA, man, is you ain't ever have to leave a meeting without the benefit of sponsorship. So, you know, when I was new, I would be sitting in the meetings, and I knew I was supposed to get a sponsor, right? And I'd be looking around, and I'd be like, but I don't know who in here does that, you know? Well, now you do. Okay. They told me to get a home group. My home group today is the Friday Night Venice Group in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
in Sandusky, Ohio. Our primary purpose is to carry the alcoholic, the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. I think we do a pretty good job of that. We have a lot of fun in the process. We've been doing it almost 60 years. No, my home group ain't the best group in the world, ain't the worst group in the world. My group is just a group. Some of my sponsors told me when I came in here, it is okay to stop competing now. The war is over. Okay? See, before I came to AA, I always lived my life on a better than or less than basis. And when I live my life on a better than or less than, I'm different basis. Okay? I'm never a part of. See, this is the last place I cannot be a part of. Okay? Today, I'm a member of a group. I'm not the best group in the world. I'm not the worst group in the world. It's an AA group. Okay? I'm an alcoholic. I ain't the best one or the worst one. Ever. I'm just an alcoholic. Okay? And I'm a member of a worldwide fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay? And that's what I like to call the total package in Alcoholics Anonymous. Sponsorship, home group, big book, and steps. In my experience, which is the only thing I'm allowed to share from behind the podium, and in a little while you'll understand why, I have yet to see an alcoholic of our type Come into these rooms, if you don't know what an alcoholic of our type is, read the book. Come into these rooms, take that total package, apply it to their life one day at a time to the best of their ability, which is all that God asks. Nobody does it perfect. I've yet to see one do that and go out and take a drink. And I've been here for, I haven't seen it happen one time. Ladies and gentlemen, the program of recovery was designed for success, not for failure. On the flip side of the coin, however, I have yet to see an alcoholic of our type. Come in here, ignore those things, and stay sane, sober, or happy for any appreciable length of time. The simplicity of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those who do get, and those who don't, don't. And it's just that simple. Now I came in AA, I sat around here, I was waiting on it to rub off on me. Okay. You should me share something with you. That's like going to the bar, sitting in the corner, watching somebody else drink and think you're going to get drunk watching them drink. How absurd is that? Okay? And I come in here and I watch other people recover and somehow think that this is the program of osmosis and somehow it's going to rub off on me. Okay? It's a program of action. Bottom line is this. You know, a man told me when I came in, hey, hey, son, sitting in the chicken coop don't make you no chicken. You can sit around here all you want. Okay? Until you take these principles and apply them to your life. They're not going to do you any good. And I should know that from my life. I was born in Sandusky, Ohio, where I still live today. And even when I was running with Al, I lived in Sandusky. I didn't live out here. That was, that was my boy. Al McCauley was the godfather to both of my children. He was the best friend I ever had in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think about Al every day. And by God, I rode by my real funeral home on my way out here. And I didn't cry. I smiled. Because okay. that was my boy. Al with me every day. No. But I was born in Sandusky, Ohio. I'm 49 years old. I was second of three boys. I was raised in a Christian home, and I was taught the principles of this program before I ever went to kindergarten. Okay? I had a finer mother and father that have ever graced this earth. Okay? Mama's gone now. My mom and dad were the best. I saw these principles in action in my house every single day. In our house, they told us honesty is the best policy. A real man is always honest with himself and other people. If you got caught lying in my house, you got an automatic whooping. Did that happen to anybody else's house in here? Huh? The principle of the first step, step one. My mother said to me one day, Kenny, contrary to what you believe, the sun don't rise when you wake up and set when you go to bed. She said, take a look out the window and tell me what you see. Trees, birds, flowers, cars, people, sky, grass. She said, you think they just popped out of nowhere? She said, there's a power that's greater than you that created all of this, and all you have to do is be willing to believe that step, too. In our house, they told us if we would make a decision to put our lives in the hands of that power, and in our house, they called that power God. She said, you'll always have what you need no matter what happens outside or around you. Step three. In our house, they told us, anytime you got a problem, take a look at it and come talk to us about it. No matter how bad you think it is, a problem shared is a problem half solved. You're only as sick as your secret. Steps four and five. In our house, Mama used to say, the biggest room in your life is the room for improvement. If you can make C's, you can make B's. If you can make B's, you can make A's. And if you will ask that power to help you in any positive endeavor you want to make in your life, the power will always help you because that's what the power does. Step six and seven. 
And our house, they told us, anytime you hurt, harm, or wrong somebody else, go make right the wrong you've done. You owe an apology, make it. You owe money, pay it. Clean up your mess. Steps eight and nine. My mother used to say you can never go forward in life if you don't know where you are today and what you need to work on to get where you want to go. You should always be inventorying your strengths and weaknesses. Socrates said 3,000 years ago, the uninventoried life is a waste. Step 10. Our grandmother told us, you want to have a good day? Get on your knees in the morning and say one word, please. As you go throughout the day and you don't know what to do, ask for help. At night, get on your knees and say two words, thank you. Step 11. And then our family told us the greatest thing we could do with our lives is not acquire money and material things. They told us the greatest thing we could do with our lives is be a service to others. We was taught to follow the golden rule, talk to people the way we wanted to be talked to, treat people the way we wanted to be treated, to respect our elders. We were taught to offer to share what we had with others before we had our own, be of service to your fellow man, step 12. Was there anybody in here that was taught them things when you grew up? Okay. For you new people in here, I just took you through the steps. What I want you to know is this spiritually principled living did not originate in Akron, Ohio in 1935. Those principles are ancient. And there's people out there who live like that every single day, and they do not expect a pat on the back for them. Okay. Why would I? I'm not, I don't give pats on the back. And why would I need a pat on the back for living the way that I was raised to live and that God intends for a decent human being to live his life? So a lot of you are probably thinking to yourself, well, if you had all that before you went off to kindergarten, what are you doing leading the meeting tonight? <laughs> Answer to that is pretty simple, isn't it? I never did any of it. <laughs> huh? I talked about it a great deal, however. Huh? I'm one of them drunks. You ever be in the bar and there's a drunk in there quoting scripture? That was me. <laughs> I'm down the ground and he's telling. There's a man crying in his beer, usually because he's getting divorced, going to jail, or losing his job, because that's what we did on a regular basis down the ground and and Kent would stagger over with a drink in his hand and say something like this. Luke, chapter 7, <laughs> verses 12 to 15. I'm giving spiritual guidance down to Brownlee's Tavern. And I didn't just stop with that. I did marital counseling down to Brownlee's. I had never been married, but I didn't see how that made a difference. <laughs> when my life savings laying on the bar, I give financial guidance down to Brownlee's. My father called me a walking encyclopedia of perfectly useless information. Okay? Why? Because none of that was born in my experience. It's something I read in a book or overheard somebody else say. See, I can become a parrot in AA too. So-and-so used to say, the big book say on page 35, hey, dog, this is what I tell my, how you living? How you living? I'm not, I don't care what you say. How you living? If you live in this, you don't have to tell me. Because I could see it. See, none of the things I said was born of my experience. So when I, if somebody was listening to me, hey, you know, th there's no, there's no depth or weight to that message, is there? Because it's not born of experience. I was restless, irritable, and discontented as a kid. Shy, insecure, and afraid. I tell people that I was a prime candidate to have problems with alcohol. I always felt somehow different than, less than, or behind than other people my own age. As a result, I just used to follow my older brother around a lot. My older brother was four years older than me. He was a football star, so Dusky's a football town. And uh, he used to take me with him wherever he went, four years older than me. Never understood why. I know why today, because we wouldn't have had that much time. I got a brother four years younger than me. We almost 50. I ain't took him nowhere yet. But my brother would take me with him. And I had a sense of ease and comfort with my brother. He was my drink of choice at the time. When I was with him, I did not have to be, do, or say anything. I was comfortable being quiet and around older people. Okay. September the 5th, 1972, my brother died as a result of a head injury in a football scrimmage down in Maslin, Ohio. I come from a, a long line of football playing people. Uh, my father played at West Virginia State University. My uncle Bo played for Penn State University. I had two cousins played in the NFL for over 10 years. One of them played for the Browns for 11 years. My family do football. That's what we do. That's what we was raised to do. And um, my brother was going to Ohio State to play for what he had. And um, we found out later he had a blood clot on the side of his brain. He got hit late in the scrimmage. It moved. Doctor told us later he could have been walking across the street, and it would have moved, and he would have dropped dead. Okay. So it wasn't the game of football that killed my brother. Okay, it wasn't God that killed my brother. It was a blood clot on the side of his brain. 
after my brother was gone, and, and obviously that was a very traumatic thing, not only for me, for my family, but for my entire town. Um, and um, I never talked about that until I took a fifth step in this program. I never talked to my mom and dad about it because my mom and dad was devastated and I didn't want them to have to worry about me. And, um, and I walked with that. My brother's gone. I now start hanging around people my own age. Guys I've known since I'm two years old. I'm 13. I'm standing on the south side of Sandusky. Here's the topics of conversation amongst the crew that I ran with in 1972 at the age of 13. The, the topics was drinking beer, smoking weed, and climbing in and out of girls' bedroom windows in the middle of the night. And I was back zero to zero to zero. <laughs> I had a mother that did not play that. I would have had no idea what it was if it had came up and slapped me. But do I tell people I don't know what they're talking about? Absolutely not. Do you remember them dogs you used to put in the back window of the car with the head to go like this? That's me. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yep, yep. Yeah, I was over there. Yeah, I know them. I'm 13 years old. I'm a liar, a fake, and a phony. I'm telling people I've been places I ain't been. I've done things I haven't done, and I know people that I don't know in order to gain their acceptance. No? I am willing to compromise everything that I've been taught and everything that I believe to be true to, be, to gain the acceptance of those around me. I have absolutely no sense of self at all. Empty on the inside. My mom used to talk to me a lot after my brother died. She'd say things to me like, oh, Kenny, God's been so good to you. You're going to have a wonderful life, blah, 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 blah. They used to tell my mother, I have no desire to be a service to God, you, or nobody else. Not that I didn't believe in God. Not that I blamed God for anything in my life. Now, I had come to some conclusions, however. Okay, And that's what I told her. I said, what I want out of life, I'll tell you real quick, I want mine. I want to get it my way. And I'm going to need you to leave me alone while I'm doing it, because I ain't going to do it like you do. My mother would get that sad look on her face, and she said, oh, you don't get it. We didn't raise you that way. I'm pointing my finger at her. I think you're the one who don't get it. Watch me roll. Selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking. 13 years old. One of the gifts God did give me, I did well in school. That's a gift. I did not study. I didn't work for it. And I didn't earn it. Therefore, it is a gift. Okay? But what did I do? What if I took credit for it? That's a total tenor of my life, though. Anything good, I'll take credit for anything bad. I'm blaming you. Huh? So I'm a straight-A student. My sponsor, Bill, told me something when I come in the program. He said, son, he said, anytime you're in a room alone, all your enemies are there. Okay? <laughs> and what he was referred to, obviously, is my thinking. All right? So I'm sitting in study hall. I'm about 14, 15 years old. And I had a visit from the enemy, my thinking. And here's the thought that occurred to me that day. You know, these people in this study hall, breaking their neck trying to get B's and C's, taking general math and science. I, on the other hand, I'm taking calculus, physics, fourth year Latin, fourth year English. I don't even take books home. I'm in the National Honor Society. You know, it just might be entirely possible that I know everything. Uh-huh. All right, I laugh, but I see we got a few more frustrated geniuses in here tonight. Huh? I had no evidence to support that thought as being true. I accepted it as a fact, and I left the room and I took action on it. I actually went home and stood in the middle of my mother and father's living room, and I shared that discovery with them. What happened after that, I'll make a long story short. If my mother was not as quick as she was and grabbed the back of my daddy's T-shirt, you have a different speaker here tonight. <laughs> I believe that man intended to strangle me that day. He came up off that couch. And all these years later, I never asked him about that. He had to be thinking, look what we got in our house. I'm going to end it now. <laughs> now, my father is a guy that played football back in the days when they did not have face masks. All right? I was scared of my father. He ain't me. I'm still scared of him. I ran out the screen door. I closed it. My father ran up behind me. This is what he said. He looked through the screen door. He pointed his finger at me. He said, boy, he said, you have a hard life. And I stood on that screen door. Outside that screen door, I looked through that screen door to him, and I laughed in his face. Significant day in my life. Because on that day, I closed the door. Okay? In our book, it says, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness are the three essentials of recovery. The book says, yeah, they are indispensable. That means I can't recover without those to some degree. Okay? Now, on that day, I closed my mind. From that day forward, everybody in my life, in my opinion, was an idiot. 
my mother, my father, the preacher, the teacher, later on, the police, the judges, the lawyers, the probation, the PO. You can't tell me, because if I don't know it, it ain't worth knowing. It became my philosophy of life. Selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed. According to my mother, mean as a rattlesnake, I've yet to take a drink of alcohol. I tell people I was the perfectly tilled soil for the disease of alcoholism. All I had to do was water, and I got in the car with a guy one day. Bill's story, it said, Bill forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of his people concerning drink. Alcoholism don't run in my family, it gallops. And I have been told, look at Junior, yeah, look at Junior, look at Bud. They all died of cirrhosis. Stay away from that stuff. Okay? I got in the car with a guy named Johnny. Johnny was my best friend's older brother. We all played basketball in Sandusky High School. Johnny had a snazzy car, pocket full of money. He ran around with the kind of girls I ran away from when I seen them coming down the hall. He was already known in the bars and the gambling spots. Everybody loved Johnny. I want Johnny's life. See, I live in my head. Anybody else in here a dreamer? We watch TV, we read books, and we daydream to escape reality. See, I'm already seeking different avenues of escape from reality. Okay? But I don't understand that yet. Okay? I always ask, we got any future Mega Millions winners in here? <laughs> you already know where you're going to live when you hit all that. Yeah, yeah. Then you can relate to me. All right? So I got in the car with Johnny, and Johnny said to me, hey, Coleman, let's get something to drink. If Johnny had said to me, let's go rob the carry out, I absolutely guarantee you that I would have done it. That's a little sense of self that I had. That's how empty I am on the inside. I am closed spiritually. We went through the drive-thru. We bought 10 quarts of Slits Mall Liquor Bowl. You know how it is when you're young. How much liquor do you buy? How much money do you have? We should, as much as we can get for this amount of money is what we want. We got them 10 quarts. Johnny put the convertible top down on his car. We rolled through the streets of Sandusky, and we drank that beer, and my life changed. I try to put this as simple as possible. On that day, I started drinking. I started growing. You started shrinking. I went from shy, insecure, and afraid to bold, confident, suave, debonair, and fearless. In about 20 minutes. <laughs> in the doctor's opinion, they said we drink what? Essentially for the effect produced by alcohol. I didn't particularly care for the taste of warm Schlitz bull. <laughs> okay. If I drink it for taste, I like Minute Maid Fruit Punch. I like how that tastes. But you know what? I ain't never drank a case of Minute Maid Fruit Punch in the day. Right? I drink for the effect. It produces something in me. Let me put it to you like this. For the first time on that day, I felt whole. I felt on the inside like you looked on the outside. And I ain't one of them people. A lot of people say that when I drank, I became a part of the crowd. That's not my experience. My experience is this. When I drank that day, I owned the crowd. They got guys like me in every peer group. They call them jerks. <laughs> we went behind the Derrick apartments in Sandusky where all the thugs hung out people surrounded the car the convertible top was down the music was blasting I turned I looked at Johnny and I said turn that music down because there's a few things I want to tell a few people who are present here this afternoon that I have been wanting to tell them for quite some time now that not, might not be a big deal but here's the deal I hadn't said five words in public in the last three years Johnny turned that music down and I went around that circle of hoodlums and not only did I tell each and every one of them what I thought of them but also what they needed to do in my opinion to improve themselves how did them people react I'll tell you how they reacted guys are leaning over in the convertible and hugging me and they said see I told you Coleman's alright he's one of the boys he's loosening up he's drinking a little beer man burned into my brain I made a mental note of that when I drink I now gain the acceptance of the people whose acceptance I want the most. It changes me. It changes how I see me, how I see you, and how I see the world at large. Okay? Alcohol equals success. We left from there. We went up to the home of some of them girls he run around with. I run away from. I walked into that home like I was paying the mortgage. Never been in there in my life. I went in the dining room, and I sat down, and I looked across the dining room at a girl who I believe is the prettiest girl to graduate from Sandusky High School in his 157-year history. I had never even breathed in her direction, much less said hello. And I looked over there at her, and she looked up at me, and I said, 
come here. <laughs> and she got up and she started walking toward me. Now, any sane human being at this point would probably think, hey, Kent, you know what? If you weren't so shy and scared, look what you could have did just by speaking up. You know what I mean? That's what normal is. Is that what I thought? No. Here's what I thought. If you had been drinking before now, look what you could have done. Look what you've been missing. Alcohol made this possible. Alcohol equals success. Burned into my brain. Now this is an honest program. I'm going to be honest with you tonight. Because when she got over there to me, I had no idea what to do with her. But guys like me, we watch a lot of TV. Right? So I did what they do on TV. I went like this. And she sat down in my lap. And my life changed again. And the bottom line for this whole thing is, on that day, alcohol did for me what I could not or would not do for myself. That's the bottom line. Absolute magic. I couldn't believe that I had waited this long to do this. You know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote that was an alcoholic. Okay, the magic potion was alcohol, ladies and gentlemen. And on that day, I found the magic potion. Now, I am a consequences drinker. Now, a lot of people come to AA, they ain't lost jobs, got DUIs, you know, been divorced, been homeless, none of that, been to jail, or that. and it's not necessary, is it? Okay? You can get off the elevator at any floor. That stuff is not necessary. However, that is not my experience. If this here was a drink of alcohol, and I stood here and took a sip, a cop would drop right out of that light. <laughs> I gotta tell you, man, this is my experience, you know. My father said to me, I was about 25 years old. He said, I haven't seen anything like this in my life. He said, You can't get from the end of the corner. It's like you got a cop magnet on your foot. <laughs> I came in AA and there was a guy, John C. Got John Cunningham. God rest, he's gone now. John got sober in 1946. He looked at me, he said, Kent, drink trouble, drink trouble. I said, No kidding, no kidding. <laughs> What happened to me that day? You know, I didn't go to jail. Okay? I blacked out. I have no idea what went on the rest of the night. According to eyewitnesses at the house, I heard all this the next day. I came in the front door, threw up a trail through the house. My grandfather fell on the floor laughing back in the family room. I went in the bathroom, hit everything but the toilet. The next thing I remember is my mother knocking on my bedroom door. Come out here and clean this up. You know you've been drinking. You know, blah, 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 blah. Staggered into the hallway in what later years would be my drinking uniform, my underwear. <laughs> I'm bouncing off the hallway walls, you know, them narrow hallway walls. You know? Got a hangover you can take out and I, it's alive. I'm dying. I go in the bathroom, she's still screaming in the hallway. I lock the bathroom door, I put my hands on the bathroom sink. I look through bloodshot eyes into the mirror and this is what I said, man oh man, I cannot wait to do that again. <laughs> Grounded for life is what was being discussed in the living room and how they were going to carry that out. I'm grounded for life. I got drunk one. So why do I want to do it again? The reason is simple, ain't it? Because alcohol equals pats on the back, girls in my lap. Alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Alcohol equals success. And Kent was gone. I never looked back. I can't, I don't have any prolonged periods of sobriety to share with you when things got bad. I'm the kind of drunk that when things get bad, I drink more. I'm the kind of guy who drinks to feel better about problems caused by his drinking. <laughs> I'm a guy who cannot see the forest for the trees. Okay? I'm the kind of guy, they don't send me to treatment, they put me in straitjackets. I show up to court facing my fifth DUI, drunk.
For me, alcohol was not a problem. If there's a problem, you the problem. You the one who called the police on me. <laughs> see, alcohol's an answer for guys like me. It's an answer. And see, I drink and I have problems in my life as a result of my drinking. So I feel worse, so I drink even more. And I, and I have more problems in my life because of my drinking, and I drink even more. And it's like being on a fair, Ferris wheel, man, and there ain't nobody to shut it off. That's how active alcoholism was in my life. I kept doing the same thing over and over and over for 18 years. And as my alcoholism progressed, my behavior got progressively worse. 16 years old, I get a car. My mother says to me, be home at 1 o'clock. I come home at 2. She grounds me. Then I come home at 3. She grounds me. We do this every three weeks. I'm grounded every two weeks. Finally, I come home, it's 4.20 in the morning. Never forget it. Walked in the front door. I'm 16 years old. My mother's sitting on the couch. She got tears running down her face. See, we talk a lot about child abuse in society. You're looking at a parent abuse. I walked in the, into the living room. My mother got tears coming down her face. It's 4.20 in the morning. I'm 16 years old. This is what she said to me. Kenny, as your parents, we owe you a roof over your head, food to eat, clothes on your back, and an education. And we have fulfilled our part of the bargain. She said, well, buddy, I got something you can't have. And she said, that's my peace of mind. She said, Kenny, you're going to the penitentiary or the cemetery and you're not taking me with you. I'm done. Go do what you want, Kenny. I'm done. I stood in the living room. I looked at my mom. And this is what I said. I broke you. I broke you. And you know what? Wasn't even hard. And I walked away. It's a snapshot of Kent at the age of 16. I graduated high school. In the 12 and 12, I said alcohol is a rapacious predator. When I read AA literature, I have to ask myself, what does that mean to me in here? Rapacious predator. See, until Bill's story becomes Kent's story, it's just recreational reading to me. Rapacious predator means nonstop tanker. See, I can't see. One of the baffling features of this disease I suffer from is that you can't see what it's doing to you until you're free of it. Looking in the rearview mirror, I could tell you all this stuff that happened when it was going on. I couldn't tell you nothing. Okay. Arguments in my house. Tell you how, this is how you can sit with my drinking did. I went to college. I went to Miami of Ohio. I graduated from high school. One of the best schools in the country. You know what I told my mother and father when I got my letter of acceptance to Miami? Because I got the grades to get in there and I didn't ask to be born, so you should pay. Snapshot of Kent, age 17. It's the kind of kid I was. When my parents took me to school on that Sunday, all the freshmen coming, what do you see? Parents hugging the kids, right? Baby leaving home for the first time. Tears everywhere. If you was watching my family that day, that's not what you saw. <laughs> my father unloaded that van like his butt was on fire. <laughs> they was up I-75 before I got my key in the dorm room door. I kid you not. You know what my father said to me when he got going down the steps? Now your mother can sleep. Now your mother can sleep. From the day I picked up a drink. See, by the time I'm in my late teens, something has happened. See, as a youngster, I had some goals and aspirations and dreams. Okay? And, I, and, I, and I crafted activities around my life to support that. I went to school. I hung out with the right people. You know, I did extra work. You know, I played ball. I did all those things that would support those goals. Somewhere in my late teens, a change took place. Okay? Those goals, aspirations, and dreams that was at the center, what was at the center changed. And what was in the center now was drinking. And I've constructed activities around that to support it. Okay? The people that I hung out with are people who drink like me. My mother used to say, what about Johnny? You don't see him no more? Ah, no, he got a job. You know what? Johnny don't want to be with me no more. And I don't want to be with him because he don't drink like I drink. So my acquaintances are now what? Dictated by my drinking. The places I go, the, the things I do, the activities I participate in. Bill Wilson said, what do you do? Play golf. Because you could drink the whole time you did it. Okay? So now I'm bowling and playing softball. Uh, we drink there. Everything. The women in my life all come out of the bar. I used to have a one-line interview for a girl. Do you like to drink? If the answer was no, I'd say next. <laughs> a friend of mine in Canada said that was the wrong question you was asking, Kent. 
He said the question should have been, would you like to spend the rest of your life in Alamon? <laughs> See, they call this crossing the line. Okay. I'm no longer drinking for fun and because I want to. I had 19 shakes by the time I was 19 years old. I was at Miami. I went to the bartender down at the Boar's Head Inn where I had set up headquarters. And I said to Tom, Tom, my hand's shaking so bad this morning I couldn't I'm 19 years old. You know what Tom told me? Go get you a fifth 100 proof old granddad, take two shots in the morning, your hands will stop shaking. Without questioning that, I went straight to the liquor store, got a fifth of granddad, got up the next morning, drank two shots, my hands stopped shaking. And you know this, I never questioned the bartender. I got parents, counselors, coaches, church folk, family, all these wonderful people in my life trying to help me. And you know what I'm telling them? I don't have to listen to you. But I never question the bartender. Why is it that I'm always willing to listen to the people who harm me? Why is that? I uh, eventually got out of school, came back to Sandusky, my alcoholism now is dictating everything in my life. Instead of going to work for Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, I'm already in a union from working summer times in the automotive plant, and I come back to work on the line. Why? Because I would have been fired at Procter & Gamble in a moment, and I knew it. I came to the protection of a union. Okay? I go to the midnight shift. Why? No bosses, so I can be drunk. I bid into a department where the supervisor is an active alcoholic, so we can watch each other's back. Alcohol now costs all the shots in my life. Okay. Things get progressively worse. I'm not going to get into it. Felony weapons charges, um, a fight with the SWAT team in downtown Toledo, me and two of my buddies at about, I don't know, about 23, 24 years old. Um, my buddy challenged the SWAT team to a fight. I had carried a gun into a bar, started some trouble. SWAT team accepted our challenge. <laughs> After they beat us half to death, we woke up the next morning in the Toledo House of Correction. But that's not the way I told it down at the bar the next week. When I told it down at the bar, you know what I told the boys? We held our own. And that was kind of true when they got done with us. We was holding our own, but that's another story. My grandfather bought me out of that. I should still be in penitentiary for what I did that night. And he bought me out of it. Um, at the end, I'm drinking for oblivion. I, I'm just, I just want to be as drunk as I can. I'm working two days a week. Um, no baths, no showers. i got a liver that's distended about seven inches. Um, I'm coughing this white stuff up every time I drink. Um, I'm no longer welcome in the home of my parents or my family. Um, that magic potion that one time had opened the world up to me, had now closed in and made my world this big. Okay. I don't come out in day daylight anymore. I'm ashamed of who I am and what I am and what you know about me. I'm afraid to come out. Every time the telephone rings, I almost have a heart attack. It's another bill collector. Every time the mailman's truck pulls up, my stomach turns over. I'm coughing this white stuff up. I find out later I've got alcohol poisoning. My liver and pancreas are no longer metabolizing the alcohol I'm drinking. My body is now rejecting what my mind is obsessed with. I'm 32 years old, and I'm dying of alcoholism. I'm a great believer in the power of prayer. You know, our book is full of prayers, isn't it? It's one on almost every page. We don't talk about that that much, do we? We don't talk about that much. The book is full of prayer. You know, I'm here because people prayed for me. I didn't come here because, oh, I heard good things about it. I ain't know nothing about it. I didn't care nothing about it. I ain't know nothing about you. I didn't want to meet you. I came out of a bar and I had what they call a moment of clarity or a moment of sanity. I heard a guy say one time, that's the moment when God paralyzes the liar in you long enough for you to see the truth. And what I saw was this. Kid, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. You better get some help because you can't stop by yourself. And you better do it now. Because you're running out of time. And I went home and I made a phone call. Seeing them last years, to be honest with you, I did try to stop. I tried. But I couldn't. 
couldn't. And I didn't know where to turn. So I called the guy that I used to, uh, he was my business partner at Miami. And the business that we was in was not legal. <laughs> it was distribution of control, controlled substances in the Midwest is what our business was. But what he did is uh, he straightened his life up. He's a doctor. He's the head of radiology at the Kettering Medical Center out of Dayton. He's a very powerful man. And I didn't know who else to call. I figured Rich is a doctor. Now, I owed him $5,000, hadn't bothered to pay any of it back. His wife answered the telephone that night I called. And this is how she said it. Richard is Ken. And Richard got on the phone. And I said, Rich, it's your boy, man. I need some help. And this is what he said to me. He said, man, I've been waiting for this call for seven or eight years. Pack a bag. Stay by the phone. I got you. See, he knew. He called me back 15 minutes later, said he was going to put me in treatment in a place in Xenia, Ohio, called Green Hall. My brother and his wife drove me the next day from Sandusky to Centerville. Now, I did not know anything about treatment, but on my own, genius that I am, I had figured out one thing. It wasn't serving no liquor in there. <laughs> so I got a case of Genesee for the trip. I'm in the back seat, my brother and his wife in the front seat. I got six or seven cold jennies in me, and you ain't going to believe this. But on my way to treatment, I had a visit from the enemy. And here's what he said to me after six or seven cold beers. You know, I just may have overreacted here. Huh? But ain't that what alcohol does for you? What do I drink for? The effect. It produces in me a sense of ease and comfort. I got to drink, and I'm the wait a minute now. We're going a little too far here for this treatment thing. Right? What I did not know is my daddy know more about alcoholism than I thought. Because he told my brother and his wife, I'd give you $100 not to bring him back. <laughs> so when I suggested that we turn around, a mistake was made, they refused. We got to Richard's house in Centerville. He bought me a quarter Miller's for the trip. He said it was always your favorite. We pulled into the parking lot of Green Memorial Hospital. Rich put his car in the park. I had about this much left in that quart. He turned and looked at me. He said, go ahead, dog, finish that. And don't ask me how I know it, man. He said, last drink you ever going to take. It was 17th of May, 1992. Have not had another drop of alcohol or anything else since that day in that parking lot. I never would have believed it possible. It treated me great at the hospital, nine days in detox. I had some liver problems. I came out. I went to what they call men's group. Had a circle of about 12 men, about 8 o'clock in the morning, reading out loud stories of their drinking escapades in the street. The counselor says to me, Kent, it's your first day in group. Tell us what you think about what you heard here this morning. I said, I'll tell you what I think about what I heard, Jim. <laughs> well, I'm down here for a few days to get help for this small problem that I might have. Jim, I'd like to volunteer my time, service, and energy to help you with these people, because these are the sickest people I've seen in my life. <laughs> That one statement got me an extra week of treatment. I spent 35 days in a 28-day program. They cut my insurance off the 28 days. They called Ford Motor Company. You know what they said? They said, we don't think kids ready to leave the hospital. You know what Ford Motor Company said? We don't either. They paid for me to stay another week. The next morning, they called me down to the nurse's station, and my enemy married the nurse, who was 28 years sober, Hung a sign around my neck this big and said, I am not a counselor. I had to wear it for a whole week. <laughs> but I will hasten to say this. I don't think I was the first guy like that they seen down there because it wasn't a new sign. <laughs> Next day they had me write and read the group I did. Jim said Kent, put your chair in the middle of the room. Let's make a circle around Kent. Tell him what we think of him. I just got the ball rolling by saying, Kent's so full of BS, his eyes are turning brown. If you throw him in water, he'll float away. Nicest thing that was said in that room that day. <laughs> but them guys told me in that room that day was if I didn't get out of myself, I was going to leave that place. I was going to drink and I was going to die. And how it works, we heard it right here tonight. that this is a manner of living, which what? Demands rigorous honesty. My sponsor, Kenny, told me that is not a suggestion. Get honest or die. It's the principle of the first step, and you can't go any further until you get that. 
I went back to my room. I sat on the edge of my bed, and I made a decision to be as honest as I could the rest of the time I was there because I knew what I heard the day before in that room. Whatever bit them bit me. I went to my first AA meeting at Green Hall. It was a discussion meeting. A lady from out of town raised her hand. She had a problem when they asked if anybody had one. They went around that table. They shared with that lady similar problems they had had and the solutions they had found. Nobody judged her, criticized her, condemned her. I saw the <coughs> fellowship, the people in a meeting of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, come to the aid of a total stranger with no judgment or condemnation. My thought as I sat over there against the wall watching that happen was this. How could something like this exist? And I've never heard of it. See, I was given a gift of love and AA at the very first meeting that I went to. And it has not diminished. It has grown. Okay? If you knew here tonight and you don't love this, keep coming back. After 35 days, I got out of treatment and I came home and I started to play a game. It's called Don't Drink, Go to Meetings, and Don't Do Nothing Else. If I put my arm through a window and cut an artery in my arm and start bleeding all over the house, I put a towel on my arm, I drive to the hospital, I run in the emergency room, I sit down, I'm bleeding all over the floor. The doctor comes out and says, come on back, Mr. Coleman, we'll treat you now. I sit there in the emergency room, bleeding to death, look at the doctor and say, no, thank you. I'll just sit here. And I bleed to death in the emergency room. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the emergency room. I've been in AA long enough now. I've watched people who attend these meetings on a regular basis die of untreated alcoholism. The treatment for alcoholism is a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Period. Period. And I came into these rooms and I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And I... <coughs> got sicker. I got what the old timers in seduction called stark raven sober. I'm yelling at people in the meeting. I'm telling people I don't have to do this. Who do you think you are? And they kept saying, come back tomorrow, Ken. I got mad at them down at the club one morning for criticizing me. I was telling them about the 10th step. Didn't even have a sponsor. I ain't ever read the book. <laughs> And a guy named Dan sitting in the back of the room, he didn't wait for his turn. He said, wait a minute. He said, any new people in here do not listen to that man. He does not know what he's talking about. He hasn't done any of this. Do not listen to him. Oh, I wanted to strangle that guy. That's what I'm doing in the rooms of AA. I'm telling people how to stay so. I'm nuts. You know what Dan did? Dan used to follow me to me. Whenever I made a comment, he corrected it. <laughs> you know what Dan did for me? Dan kept me alive. Dan sponsored me without me knowing. On the day I finally got a sponsor, it was big news down at the club, believe me. <laughs> I told him one day I'm never coming back. I came back the next day. And the guy, Al Perkins, said to me, what are you doing back? I thought you weren't coming back. I said, I wasn't until I realized I don't have anywhere else to go. And I got a sponsor, and Dan came up to me, and he said, is that your sponsor, Kent? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, man, you got a good sponsor. And he turned, and he walked out the door, and I didn't see him again for six months. We came out here to the Punderson Conference, and we were sitting at a fire at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And I looked at Dan, and I said, man, I know what you did for me now. How can I ever pay you back? And Dan looked at me, and he said, the next time you see somebody as sick and as angry as you were coming into these rooms, you do for them what I did for you. Because somebody did it for me. And that's what we do here in AA is we pass it on. Don't we? What 250 AA meetings in three months, because that's how many I went to, got me was the parking lot of Daly's Pub. See, alcohol, I'm not drinking. I made that clear. I'm not drinking. But alcohol wasn't my problem, was it? Never was. My problem sounds a lot like alcohol, but it's not. It's something much, much different. See, my problem is alcoholism, not alcohol. And here's what I know about the disease of alcoholism. It's a progressive, fatal disease that will kill me whether I drink or not. And if you don't understand that, stick around here and watch what happens to people who are alcoholic and who just
don't drink. I ended up in the parking lot of Daly's Pub, never wanted to drink so badly in my life. I'm three months sober. And I'm sitting in the car, and uh, I said my first prayer in AA. Been AA three months, I said a prayer. And here was the prayer God, what am I doing wrong? And man, like a lightning bolt, what are you doing right? If you go to 258 AA meetings in three months, you hear it every day, don't you? Get a sponsor, read them all, work the steps, get a home group, get active, help others. Right? I wasn't doing none of that. I treated AA like a cigarette smoking, donut dunking coffee club. The first, last one at the meeting, the first one out the door when they said amen. That's what I did. Okay? The next day I got a sponsor. I said, be careful what you tell me because I'm going to do it. I don't want to drink again. He says, what I'm going to do is take you through the 12 steps as outlined by the founders in the big book. He said, that's all I got to give you. They call the steps a kid of spiritual tools. I got a toolbox in my house in Sandusky. I have never sat in my living room, watched a hammer, pliers, and screwdriver walk across the floor of my house and fix a thing. The only value of the tool is if I pick it up and use it. The only value of these steps is if I apply them to my life. I've had the great privilege of seeing AA all over the world. I have yet to attend a meeting where somebody stands up and says, works if you know it. <laughs> said, here are the steps we took. Don't say here are the steps we memorized. Here are the steps we analyzed. Here are the steps we pondered. I said, here are the steps we took. I don't work the steps. I take the steps. If you give me medicine, I don't work it. I take it. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives become unmanageable. Powerless over alcohol. I drink against my will. Put it to you like this. When my job, my family, my freedom, and eventually my life depended on me not drinking, I drank. It says in the book, we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. What does that mean to Kent? I know what it means in the book. What did that mean to me? To fully concede is to accept defeat and surrender to the fact that no conditions exist under which I can safely take a drink, and i got almost 20 years of drinking history that will bear that out. Unmanageable life. Family relationships gone. Can't be happy. Can't make a living. If powerlessness is the problem, thank God, step two. Came to believe a part great in ourselves to restore us to sanity. How did I do that? I came in here and I watched you and I listened to you. I see these people, I always say, people stand behind these podiums and tell stories Stephen King couldn't make up. <laughs> but they was dressed nice, laughing, smiling, and talking about how they got a God of their understanding in their life and that's when their life changed. Now, in the first step, I've already accepted I got what you got. So if I got what you got and there's a power that can help you, then there's one that can help me. The power of your example is how I came to believe the second step. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Tonight I made a decision to come out here to Willoughby. What made it come true? I got in my car and drove out here. That's what made it come true. Okay, The decision in and of itself didn't make it come true, did it? It had to be followed by some action. In order for any decision to come true in my life or bear fruit, it's got to be followed by some action. What is the action that turns my will and my life over to the care of God in step three. Steps four through twelve. What the third step is, is the promise to submit to the rest of the process. I did not turn my will and my life over to the care of God in step three, and I wasn't asked to do that. I was asked to make a decision to do that and immediately follow it with an inventory. Made a search in the field as more inventory of ourselves, resentment, fear, sex, conduct. I did it the way it says, do it in the book. I didn't use no worksheet. I didn't use no Outline, I didn't use any of the stuff that people want to use to make a thumbprint on the only treatment for alcoholism in the last 5,000 years. What's wrong with the book, my sponsor said. I did it out of the, rarely have we seen an individual fail who have thoroughly followed our path. See, I'm not willing to bet my life on somebody else's. And I did it the way it says, do it in the book to the best of my ability. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. I sat down with my sponsor and I came clean. 
What I felt after the fifth step was two things. No lightning bolt, but I felt this. It was the first time I felt in my heart I was going to be able to stay sober because there's two things if I hadn't have told them, I know I would have drank again. And it's also the first time that I felt like a real member of Alcoholics Anonymous was after I did the fifth step. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character and humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Steps six and seven. I like those in the biblical sense, sins of commission and omission, defective character, things I do wrong, shortcomings, what should I be doing? Give you an example. I'm very selfish. In the morning, I say, God, remove this selfishness. He don't unzip me and pull it out. Here's what happens to me. My phone rings at 630, and it's a new guy I gave my number to. He says, Kent, can I get a ride to a meeting? There's two answers I can get at, young fellow. Well, son, I'm watching Gunsmoke. <laughs> but I'll send one of my sponsees to get you, or else I can get up and go get him, because God just answered my prayer, didn't he? He answered my prayer by providing for me an opportunity to get up off my butt and practice unselfishness. See, God don't do for me what I can do for myself. He provides the opportunities. Every day, I'm surrounded by people who provide for me opportunities to practice actions opposite my defects and thus become a better person. What happens a lot of the time, though, is I'm so wrapped up in Kent, I miss him. Okay? My life is best when it's focused on you. Okay? Our, our purpose is to be a maximum service to God and the people around us. Where does that mention me? Made a list of all persons we had harmed, became willing to make amends to them all. I made the list, asked God to give me the courage to face them people. Step eight, keep it simple. Step nine, made direct amends to such people ever possibly except when to do so would injure them or others. If I drive my car through your fence and you say, go mend my fence, I go, hey, I'm sorry, fence. No. <laughs> I go out there and put it back the way it was before I drove through it. If I owe you money, I'll pay you. If I owe you my time, i give you my time, whatever I got to do. Okay? Biggest amend I had to make was to my mother. How do you make amends to somebody who spent their whole life trying to make yours better and you spent yours ripping their heart out of their chest and stomping in front of their face? My mother had cancer when I came into this program. She died when I was about two years sober. My sponsor said, you will go back into that home. You will help your father take care of your mother. And you will be a son to her and you will not say anything until I tell you. And I went into that home and my mom got to see me go to AA meetings every day. My mom got to see me bring sponsees to that house and sit down at the table with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My mom got to see me put on a shirt and a tie and go speak in meetings when I didn't even have a suit. And, um, and we was together every day. And we laughed and we had fun. Finally, my sponsor said it's time. I had a big speech planned out. They got her off the morphine. I sat down with her. I looked at her. Tears ran down her face. The tears ran down mine. I couldn't get the big speech out of my mouth. The only thing that came out of my mouth was my mom's sorry. And my mom looked at me and she smiled. Because, see, my mother raised me this way. She knew exactly what I was doing. And my mother smiled at me and she said, I forgive you. My mother died holding my hands and looking in my eyes in the hospital room with my whole family. And I got a big family up there calling her name. My uncle stood in the back of the room and said, don't call her no more. She's not going to look away from Kenny because that's how she wants to go. And that's how my mom left this earth. And if I was never given another blessing and I've been blessed a million times over in here, that was enough. Thank God for the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted that the book said it ain't an overnight matter. Must continue for a lifetime. There's no graduation, diploma, top rung, or ladder, or certificate in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we was talking about Al before the meeting. Al used to say they got pajamas at the local detox that fit any length of sobriety. And how true that is. I spoke in Toronto. They introduced me to a man who got drunk for 44 years in here. I spoke in Minnesota. They introduced me to a man who got drunk for 46 years in here. See, my sponsor Bill told me something I ain't never forgot. He said, son, the longer you stay here, the ice gets thicker, but it's just a slippery. I stay sober one day at a time. I don't stay sober 90 meetings in 90 days. They don't have quarterly recovery where I come from. We stay sober one day at a time. Step 10 is nothing but steps 4 through 9 on a daily basis. Okay? I got my house clean in 4 and 5. Okay? Now on a daily basis, I want to keep it clean because if it gets dirty again, what's going to happen? I'm going to get drunk. I got drunk behind that stuff before I get drunk again, so we clean our house daily. So through prayer and meditation to prove our conscious contact with God is going to study and pray only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. Every day I pray for knowledge of God's will for me to power to carry it out. Um, I read, pray, and meditate every morning. It's the most important thing I do every day. It's more important than going to meetings. My sponsor told me it's the most important thing. I said, why is that? He said, how can you expect to have a good day if you don't start it right? That made sense. Okay. 
And that's how I begin it. What a wonderful way of life. What a wonderful way to start the day. Haven't had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Books of the spiritual awakening is a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. As a result of doing this, I've changed. How much have I changed? I don't know. Anytime I grade my own paper, I give myself an A. <laughs> if you want to know how much I change, I'll give you a tip. Go to Sandusky, Ohio, and ask my dad. Go ask the Sandusky City Police. <laughs> who now bring me people they think I can help. Okay. And I try to carry this message, very simple. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. And intensive work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. Six words, trust God, clean house, and help others. And that's the message has been since June 10th, 1935, and it is today. You heard nothing new or profound here tonight. I met and married a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. She's two, sober two years longer than me. Reminds me of that on a daily basis. Uh, <laughs> my wife is a cardiovascular intensive care nurse. My wife is one of God's girls. My wife is one of them people who wear the 12 steps of this program like a loose garment. I don't have to go to AA meetings to see how the steps of this program are supposed to be lived. I got it in my house. I got two little girls, look like my wife and my mother combined. I got some beautiful little girls. Act just like me. Stay tuned. <laughs> my dad said last night to me before I left this hospital room, you know, since she went into this AA, these been some of the best years of my life. If you're new here tonight, I'm going to leave you with something. Relapse is not a requirement for recovery. Relapse is not a part of recovery. When I came in AA, they gave me a tape of a man named Warren Chisholm Senior. Got sober in 1939, 12th man in AA in Cleveland. And in that tape, Warren Chisholm said this, and I can hear his voice now. But anyone who comes here who is willing to work the program of recovery, as outlined in the big book by the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, need never drink again one day at a time. I said to my sponsor, that's a pretty bold statement. How can he say that? And my sponsor, Bill, told me, he said, it's simple, Ken. He said, it's because this is a spiritual program, and God doesn't fail. If this don't work for me, it's because I have not fulfilled the conditions that have been laid down. God doesn't fail. If I said anything to help anybody tonight get a praise, the honor, and the glory to God, and myself, I am nothing. My strength comes from my Father in heaven. If I didn't say nothing to help you tonight, guess what? There's some more meetings tomorrow. <laughs> God does not make too hard turns with those who seek him. God could and would if he were sought. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find. And join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then, good night.